Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. All organisms can have a big impact on our atmosphere and our climate. Now, lots of small organisms can do things like convert gas into electricity or maybe get rid of all that methane in our atmosphere. And how do they accomplish this great feat? We find out about some unusual archaea and the way that they assimilate some genes along the way to help them with this process. A major trope of literature, science fiction, and even in the way we view cultural interactions is this idea of assimilation. Concepts get absorbed into a larger body and remnants of them retained long after the original has become merged in. Sometimes they have distinct sections, other times they just blended in. Now, in Star Trek, for example, they have the Borg, this ruthless collective that assimilates all beings into themselves in this large robotic hive mind. Now, there are plenty of other science, science fiction entities that do a similar process of absorption. And, of course, scientists are often incredible fans of things like science fiction. So, when researchers like Jill Banfield discover organisms that manage to absorb in and keep characteristics of genes of different creatures that they absorb, well, the first thing that came to her mind and others was, of course, that of the Borg. Now... Banfield and her team published in the journal Nature exactly on this topic. And it's to do with a type of creature called Methanooperidin. Now, Methanooperidin are archaea. Now, when we talk about archaea, we've got to be clear. These are unicellular organisms that are like bacteria and that they resemble them, but they're actually a completely distinct area of the tree of life. If you were to look at the different branches of the definitions of life, archaea are in a whole separate breakdown. And methanopyrinidines are pretty interesting because they're unicellular organisms that are able to break down methane, CH4, as you find it in soils, in groundwater, in atmosphere. And they use this methane to power their metabolic system. It's their food, it's their energy. Now, this is a pretty cool thing, something that consumes methane. And look, there are other methane-consuming microbes out there, especially in all kinds of diverse ecosystems across the world. But it's less common than microbes that use photosynthesis, oxygen, or fermentation for energy. So you can find unicellular organisms that will break down methane. But just because of the abundance of other things in our atmosphere, like CO2 or oxygen, or maybe fermentation with sugars, these are more common energy sources for these forms of tiny life, as opposed to, well, methane. And yet, if you think about it, methane is pretty important because we actually end up with a lot of methane in our atmosphere from both natural processes, but also from anthropogenic sources, you know, pollution want a bit of a word and this is a pretty important thing because methane is a pretty potent greenhouse gas in the atmosphere methane traps heat way more 30 times more than carbon dioxide and if you think about human contribution to global warming methane emissions are right up there it's why you often hear about people trying to put a burp tax on cows for example as agriculture is like well a major emitter of methane now that's not what we're talking about in this instance i'm just using that as an example to talk about how important methane is in our atmosphere 
and methane is one gas in the atmosphere. And the gases that we have today in our atmosphere were not the same gases that our planet Earth started off with. Many of the gases that make up the air that we breathe are actually the result of not only geological processes, but also biological ones. Without certain types of microbial life and plants, well, there wouldn't be air for us to breathe, or at least in the concentrations that we need to thrive, us and other life. So small things can have a huge impact on the makeup and concentrations of atmosphere. And that's what research like Jill Banfield from the Barclay Lab, are diving into, looking at the way that small microbial activities can have large-scale environmental impacts and how these large-scale environmental impacts shape the processes and change the conditions that encourage different types of microbes to grow on the planet. The cycle that is involved between the microbiome of the planet and the really micro processes of these individual bacteria that we're talking about. Now, as part of this work, Banfield and her team regularly take samples of microbes from all over the world to see what they have inside of them, what genes these microbes use to survive, and how these genes may impact different parts of the global cycle of key elements. These elements are things like carbon. The carbon cycle is an incredibly important cycle that we are more and more aware of now when we talk about global warming, but it is just one aspect of one of the many cycles in our planet. Another is the nitrogen cycle. If you're familiar with agriculture and agricultural runoff as it pertains to pollution, then you'll also be familiar with the nitrogen cycle. There's also one for sulfur. So there's many different elements on our planet that move around through a combination of interactive processes with geological things like weather, water, rain, evaporation, and also events like volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and so on. Plus, you also have the way life interacts with these. So that's some pretty interesting cycle processes that are ready to be investigated. And microbes can play a pretty interesting role in interacting as one of the steps inside this process. So that's why the researchers like Benfield take samples of all microbes from different parts of the world to try and understand their genomes, look at packets of DNA inside of them, as well as these extra chromosomal elements, ECEs. Now these are interesting because they transfer genes between bacteria, archaea, and viruses. So these elements, ECEs, allow microbes to quickly gain beneficial genes from their neighbors even if it's something they're only, let's say, distantly related to. This kind of gene exchange through extra chromosomal elements is really fascinating because it's a way of these really diverse areas of life, small-scale, single-cellular life, to exchange key information techniques that help them thrive, particularly in strange environments. The most well-known type of extra chromosomal element, ECE, is a plasmid, these circular strands of DNA that you'll find inside these plasmids. This is the one that you'd think of normally if you open a textbook and look at these extra chromosomal elements. The problem is when these researchers were studying the strange and unusual microbes found in the seasonal wetland pool soil in California, they found these methanoparacetins and inside of them they saw some really strange ECEs. These ECEs were linear in lines rather than circular like plasmids, and they're long, really long, up to a third the length of the entire genome of the poor little microbe. Now that's pretty amazing to think of because these aren't big organisms to begin with. And the genome of this thing, this extra chromosomal element is almost a third of the size of that. So it's not like a little small waste byproduct, it's massive. So when they started to analyze this, 
they found some even more stranger and stranger occurrences. They looked for different samples from different locations, underground soil, aquifers, riverbeds, all the way through California and Colorado, anywhere that they could see these methane-consuming archaea. And when they did that, they found something even more surprising. They found a total of 19 of these distinct ECEs. This is pretty surprising. They gave them the nickname the Borgs while they were working on them. Now, using pretty good genome analysis techniques, they determined that many of these sequences in these ECEs, these strange ECEs, inside of these Borgs are similar to methane metabolizing genes within the actual methoprotein genome. Some of the Borgs even encode a lot of the necessary cellular machinery to actually eat methane on their own, as long as they're you know, inside a cell that can express those genes. So this is pretty fascinating because it means that there's genetic material inside of these organisms that actually gives a boost to the consumption of methane. As fellow author on this paper, Kenneth Williams points out, imagine a single cell that has the ability to consume methane. Now you add some genetic elements within the cell that can consume methane in parallel, and also add genetic elements that give the cell higher capacity. It basically creates a condition for methane consumption on steroids. So these organisms not only have the ability to consume methane, great, that's part of their own genome, but actually they have picked up bonus skills that enable them to be more efficient at consuming methane and also store more of it, convert more of that energy. This is like some hyper-specialization into the consumption of methane by gathering up extra bits of information that could be useful for the consumption of methane. This is some really weird things that this archaea are doing. What the researchers think could be happening, including researchers like Jennifer Dudner from UC Berkeley Genomics Institute, hypothesize that maybe these Borgs, these strange archaea with these really weird ECEs, could be re having residual fragments of entire other microbes that were basically swallowed up by the methanoproteins, basically to boost their metabolism. You can see this sometimes happening in plant cells, for example. Plants can sometimes har harness formerly free-living photosynthetic microbes that are just lying around, and they basically chain them down and make them into what we now call chloroplasts. That was the process by which plants decided to be able to get this photosynthetic ability. In a similar way, ancient eukaryotic cells consumed the ancestors of today's mitochondria, which then obviously become the powerhouse of the cell. Now, based on these similarities in sequences, maybe the engulfed cell could have been perhaps at one stage a relative of the methanoperidins, but the overall diversity of the genes found inside these really long, strange ECE chains, the Borgs, indicate that these DNA packages didn't come from one source. They actually came from at least 19 different diverse organisms. So it's really odd. These archaea, the methanoperidins, seem to have existed alongside some other organisms and shuttled genes backwards and forwards over a long time. Perhaps they've swallowed up some neighbors and gained these new skills and abilities. 
Some of these were familiar cousin-like organisms and others were really diverse and different. Now, the interesting part is not only to the recognizable genes, especially for production of methane and other metabolic processes, they also saw unique genes encoding totally different metabolic proteins, membrane proteins and extracellular proteins that are involved in electron conduction for energy generation. These are all really weird things that have no commonality to the methanoproteins themselves. So this means that they've sort of amalgamated a whole bunch of just random organisms along the way. Now, perhaps this is the way that this organism has evolved to the extent that it's gaining new skills and sometimes they pay off and it exploits that niche. It's not that it seeked out particularly other organisms with methane producing skills, but it just was grabbing everything along the way and use that to its advantage to harness the production from methane. And in some ways, maybe that's what these ECEs, these long linear ones, the Borgs, are doing. They're like a storage locker. And you maybe only need certain things at a certain time, the right tool at the right moment. And when that niche presents itself, well, the cell has that information available to utilize it. Especially with something like methane production, because methane can vary by large amounts throughout the year. There's a peak normally in autumn, and it drops to its lowest levels in early spring. So therefore, you really want to be good at eating methane at some times of the year, but not so good later on, and maybe you want different techniques. Now, we know that things like plasmids often do a similar job. They can quickly spread genes for resistance to toxic molecules like heavy metals and antibiotics when the toxins are present in enough concentration to really give a push along. Otherwise, those plasmids won't actually transmit the resistance genes until they're needed. Perhaps these methoprenidine cells actually have this big long storage locker of ECEs, these Borgs, and they go and get the bits that they need when the ecological conditions are rife for them to best exploit it. Now, this is a really interesting idea, studying these strange and unusual archaea that consume methane. And in some unusual environments, like in Colorado and California, there's seasonal floodplains with huge environmental variation, which provide the best way to find some really unusual organisms with varied life stages. But it's interesting to think about the way in which you could use these cells for other applications. Carefully cultured microbes chock full of extra skills that they can deploy at the right moment may be useful for certain applications when you want to cut down on methane emissions. These are some pretty interesting ideas, but by cataloging and understanding the way in which all these strange forms of life, like archaea, work and interact with bacteria and our atmosphere and the elements present in it, we can learn a lot by how these small organisms thrive and adapt to a changing climate. And perhaps even we can use these to help ourselves adapt to a climate as it changes. This is some great research published in the journal Nature. Lead author on this paper was Basim Al-Shayeb, along with principal investigator Julian Banfield, along with others, including Kenneth Williams and Jennifer Dodner, mostly involving out of Barclay University. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Assimilating odd genes along the way helps this archaea really convert methane into all its energy it needs. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.